You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 265. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Sklar. Welcome, everyone. Welcome, everyone. You've reached another Local Maximum. I've now been doing this podcast, The Local Maximum, for five years, bringing you great content, making you smarter every week of the year, four or five years. I know that there are a lot of you listening right now, and uh, some of you have been listening to me for a while. Uh, All I'm trying to get is 50 paid supporters signed up for the locals on Maximum.Locals.com. It's not much. It's only $4 a month. And guess what? Uh, um, If you only go for one month, Locals counts that, but I hope you uh, stay for multiple months. So if you get value from this show, get even more value by having conversations directly with me, directly with Aaron and other listeners by subscribing on Maximum.Locals.com. Remember to use promo code WINTER23. We're having a good time on there, and I think with a few more of us on there, we are going to have a much better time. So look forward to seeing you on there. All right. Today we have, uh, we're going to start out with a technical topic, the multi-arm bandit, but you know, it's a technical topic with kind of a fun name and a fun, uh, fun, uh, fun background. So, so that'll be interesting. Then we got a little news update and then we return to another technical topic with probability distribution of the week. So let's get started. Let's get right into it with the multi-armed bandit. This is something that comes up, uh, over and over again in uh, data science um, and machine learning. I actually learned about the multi-armed bandit both in grad school uh, and at work at Foursquare in certain situations where we were running A-B tests. And, and I'll talk to you about you know what an A-B test is and, and why the multi-armed bandit is useful there for, uh, um, uh, in a minute. Uh, but of course, you know, I, I'd kind of forgotten a little bit about it. I'd gotten a little fuzzier about it because I hadn't talked about it for a while. But now I've been doing job interviews and I get asked, it turns out about people interviewing for jobs in in data science and machine learning, they love to ask about the multi-arm bandit. I get asked about the multi-arm bandit all the time, like multiple times a day now. So it's so, so like all the time. So since I had to dive into them anyway and learn them, uh, I thought I'd share this idea with you and we could talk a little bit about, um, what I what what I think of them and uh, and where the research is going, um, the idea of the multi arm bandit, as you can tell, is kind of taken from gambling. You know, you have a bunch of slot machines. Uh, for some reason, probably very good reasons, uh, a single slot machine is often known as a one arm bandit because you, I guess, you pull the arm and it takes your money. I did that once. I put a dollar in. I pulled the arm, uh, and it ate the dollar. So I was like, all right, uh, let's play something else. Uh, but, uh, but people love playing these slot machines all the time. And so the way that, uh, these, these, um, machines are used is in, in a casino is you kind of have a probability of getting a reward. Now, of course, this whole slot machine in the casino thing is, well, I, look, many probably, a lot of probability theory started, um, by kind of taking inspiration from casino games, trying to understand casino games, but then it gets sort of generalized to, Problems in life, problems in business, and all that. And this is this is one of those cases. So, okay, a single slot machine is known as a one-arm bandit. It has some kind of method to the madness. There's some way in which it works, but we don't really know how it works. All we could do is observe. We could observe people playing it, 
We could observe our, ourselves playing it. We could see what rewards we can get. And then over time, we can figure out how this so-called one-arm bandit really works, or at least we have a better and better idea over time. So in this case, we have a bunch of machines. And uh, the idea is that every step, every time, you're allowed to, um, you're allowed to play one of the slot machines. And we know that each one of these machines is unique or potentially unique. You know, some of them might be the same, but, but some of them might be different. And so there might be better ones to play than others. Um, and so each, each turn we get a reward. And as we play it, we can learn about the reward system of each machine. So presumably, the more time we spend in that casino, the more time we spend playing these um, playing these slot machines. Now, unlike a casino where your, your best bet is probably not to play the slot machines at all, uh, and, and if you're trying to maximize monetary reward, uh, we're talking about actions in the real world where you're trying to maximize you know, a, a real reward where you have to make a decision. And uh, oftentimes you're talking about things that, that, that do have a positive reward. But let's, let's still think about the casino. So, uh, you know, Every day you're going into this casino playing slot machines all day. After a while, you start to learn which ones are better to play, which ones are worse to play. And as you play it, presumably, you get a better and better idea. So the problem is, is this. Um, which machines do you pick to play and in what order? Uh, secondly, how does context play into this? Because unlike real-life slot machines, the actual repeated decisions that we make in life uh, may depend on the conditions on the ground. Like, for example, let's suppose I'm choosing between various investments or various types of investment vehicles. Um, and, you know, okay, um, maybe those investments are my slot machines. And I play one, see what happens, play another one, see what happens. But I might want to also take certain economic indicators uh, into account. Maybe if there's a recession, this one is better. Maybe if unemployment is like this, this one is better. Maybe, you know, so on and so forth. So, um, so uh, oftentimes that, so now that's called contextual uh, multi-arm bandit, in which case you don't really know, uh, not only do the machines have certain distributions of rewards, but that distribution uh, depends upon features, depends upon, you know, uh, 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 what's called a machine learning or X variables, <laughs> things, that, uh, uh, things that go into kind of trying to predict what these machines are going to do. Um, okay, and then another obvious, you know, parallel that we can make where these things are actually used is when it's, when you're talking about A-B tests. And so A-B tests or A-B-C tests or however you want is when you kind of run a, uh, uh, a um, well, in, in, the, in the idealized version of an A-B test, you're running a randomized control trial where let's say half of your users get seen your app, let's say, in, in, let's say it's a design question. Let's say, let's say something simple. You're, you're trying to see if the background should be blue or, or green. Uh, so maybe half of them see blue, half of them see green. You want to see if it changes what action that they take. And then you could kind of understand uh, after the experiment is done what action is better. But if you take the multi-arm bandit approach, then instead of running an A-B test, you kind of have A and B. And then over time, maybe you're trying both A and B, but over time the test automatically learns which one to, to select. And then over time, maybe it selects the one that, uh, uh, that, that it should, 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 should have been doing all along. So it's, it almost it cuts out the middleman of, okay, let's run the test for X amount of weeks, 
Then we're going to analyze the results, and then we're going to um, make some changes in our, our application that is going to reflect the results that are best. No, no, no. Uh, the multi-arm bandit approach does this all at once. You launch it, it immediately starts testing, and then it slowly uh, converges onto the right solution without your engineering team having to do anything. So, pretty cool, huh? And this is all about uh, what's known as a good way to think about this is the exploration exploitation dilemma. And so it's kind of a problem that you, you, uh, um, you uh, uh, face in life as well. And, and I think another, um, another way to say it that rhymes, I don't know why people like, people like things that rhyme in this case, is learning versus earning. So do I spend time uh, learning new skills or do I spend time applying what I already know to try to exploit those skills, to try to, uh, to, try to uh, figure out uh, what to do. And usually, the, the, the best thing to do is some kind of mixed strategy. You're learning and earning at the same time. You're exploring new ideas, but you're also, uh, you also want to exploit the ideas that work at the same time. And so um, multi-arm bandit approaches kind of are more, uh, are more exacting in terms of how are we going to make that trade-off and so and more explicit in terms of how we're going to make that trade-off and so that's really good now one of the um the main concepts that comes up in uh the multi-arm bandit is something called thompson sampling uh thompson sampling is when did when did when was it come up with when did it become up this pretty early on um like almost a a hundred years ago? Let's see, yeah, 1933, almost a hundred years ago. Uh, it was described by uh, mathematician uh, William Thompson. And so the idea is it's, it's a heuristic uh, that we use to try to pick which arm we're going to flip in the multi-arm bandit problem. And the concept is, you know, you have this kind of fuzzy notion at the beginning. And by fuzzy notion, um, Obviously, as a uh, as someone who listens to the show and knows about my view of uh, of probability as a subjective measure, it means that you have some some probabilistic notion of how each action is going to lead to a, a reward. So we have kind of a probability distribution over the reward given the action that we take, and the action is, of course. One of the bandits, one of the one of the K bandits. So, uh, what does Thompson sampling tell you to do? Well, first of all, you know, interestingly enough, you do not do what you think you should do, which is maximize the total expected reward or pick the one with the highest expected reward, uh, because that's you know that's sort of what you you that's sort of what you'd expect. You'd be like, okay, well, I think on average this machine's going to get me $10 and this other machine's going to get me $20. So I better pull the $20 machine. Um, but that, that solution would actually be total exploitation of what you know with no exploration. So think about it. You're, that, that's like totally exploiting your current knowledge of the world, trying to do what you think is best given your state of the world without any conception that you might be wrong about the state of the world and maybe try the one that's $10 because you could be wrong about that. Maybe the Ted think the one that you think is $10 is really 30 is really $30 on average. You don't know. All right. So the second thing you do not do is you do not pick the one that you think will beat all of the others. Um, now that's, that's a little bit different than total expected reward because there are certain things, certain times when 
I could have, you know, some, I could have uh, a, a slot machine where I, let's say, um, let's say one of them has an average of, let's, let's just use the, the example before, let's say one of them has an average of $20 and the first one has an average of $10, but it could be that the, the one that pays an average of $20, well, uh, usually it pays $5, but in very, very rare circumstances, it pays a very high rate of return. Uh, like that, that's the jackpot. So in very rare circumstances, you hit the jackpot, but uh, in most cases, you are only getting $5. Maybe the $10 one more or less always gives you $10. So I think that the $10... Uh, 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 machine is the one that is going to uh, uh, be the one that, that, that beats, beats all the others, that beats the other one in any given, given game. And so that strategy would just pick that one. Hey, that one is usually going to give me more. So you, you could have a situation where something beats all the others, also a plurality of times, but when the others win, they hit a big jackpot. So you'd be missing out on your chances to win that jackpot. So the idea between uh, of uh, Thompson sampling is you need to think even fuzzier than this. You don't really know the expected reward of each machine, but you have some kind of probability cloud over how these machines work, and so you actually have a probabilistic notion of what the expected rewards are. And you can combine these to get the total expected reward as well, but we're going to use this, this probabilistic notion instead. So, like, let's suppose... Um, it's the difference between saying, okay, I think this machine has a 50% chance of giving me $10 and a 50% chance of giving me $20, and uh, okay, my average is, is $15. But when you, when you take that average, you're kind of losing some information there. So we keep this full probabilistic notion of each machine. But on top of that, there's more. Uh, so uh, so let, me, let me back up a little bit. Let's suppose the machine gives you $10 half the time and $20 half the time, and then on average that's 15. But we actually don't know how the machine really works. So maybe the difference in probabilities between $10 and $20 is not 50-50. Maybe it has other values that it, it, it could give us uh, if we continue to play this machine. And we only know more about what this machine's behavior is as we play it more and more. So there are two levels of uncertainty here. The first level of uncertainty here is that the machine is essentially a dice roll. We don't know what the machine is going to do. So there's some uncertainty on every play, but then there's some uncertainty above that on like the weights of the machine. Like how, uh, what, what are the probabilities of the machine? Like how, how does it, how does it work? So Oftentimes in probability, these are like hierarchical models. There are like two different levels of uncertainty and you have to kind of suss out the difference. And I don't know if I explained it the best here, but that's, that's kind of one of the important things of trying to understand probability here. And another example, which I'll get back to later, is sort of like, hey, if I flip a coin, I'm uncertain as to whether it's heads or tails, but maybe I'm, I'm certain that it's a fair coin. But then there's another uncertainty on top of that, which is, is it a fair coin? I don't know. What are the what are the mixtures that it might give between heads and tails? I don't know that either. So that's kind of the second level. So you have to think multi-level here. So you have some probabilistic notion over the expected rewards of each machine, and therefore you have some probabilistic notion over which one gives the highest reward. And um, you know, 
So uh, the highest expected reward. So again, uh, let's go back to the first thing. The first thing I said not to do is you don't want to give the one that you think has the total expected reward, but you actually don't know which one has the highest expected reward because you have uncertainty. You have you could end up calculating some uh, some you know if I knew for sure oh this machine gives me $20 on average, and this other machine gives me $10 on average. If I knew that certainty for, for sure, then sure, pick the $20 all the time. But I don't know that number for certain. I have some probability distribution over those numbers. And so it could be like, hey, machine A, I think there's a 50% chance that machine A will get me the, uh, will, has the highest expected return. I think there's a 30% chance that machine B has the highest expected return. And I think that there's a 20% chance that machine C has the highest expected return. So that is the kind of, the, those are the kind of probabilities that you want to be calculating here. Again, I'm not telling you how to calculate these. I'm just kind of giving you the high level intuitive notion of how this works. And so uh, once you calculate those probabilities, that is the, those are the probabilities from which you choose your next bandit. So it's not like I choose the one that's 50% likely to the, the most likely to have the highest expected return. Um, it's just you, like, let's say the machine A, like I said, there's a 50% chance that that has the highest expected return. Then, okay, there's a 50% chance that I select A. And there's a 30% chance that I select B. And there is a 20% chance that I select B. And then you keep playing that way. So you're going to be trying A, you're going to be trying B, you're going to be trying C. And then as you go on and on, you can adjust those percentages. And, and that is done automatically. So that is Thompson sampling. That is how the multi-arm bandit works. Um, and then, of course, over time, you adjust your probabilities. You adjust the state of the world. And then you know, you, you have to start out with some kind of prior uh, model of how these machine works. So your first pull should be, your first pull, for example, if you don't know anything about these machines, is probably going to be some uniform distribution over the machine. In other words, your first pull, just pull a random machine. So if that makes sense, um, then you might be asking, okay, great, like, I kind of twisted my head in a knot. I think that makes sense as to how you do it, but, like, is this actually possible um, to calculate. How do you calculate? Well, it turns out in some simple examples, like, um, you know, when there are simple, when you use kind of simple classes of probability distributions, you could use Thompson sampling, and Thompson sampling is optimal. But it also turns out that that's not always possible. So I'm actually looking at a paper currently, which is recently, it's from 2021. It's by Inigo Ortega. And Chris Wiggins from Columbia, uh, Chris Wiggins is a professor from Columbia, uh, also uh, chief data scientist in the New York Times, a great researcher and speaker about these issues. Uh, and he's heavily involved in the data science community in New York City. So that's, that's why I've, I've, I've met him a few times and worked with him a few times. Uh, the title of this paper is Variational Inference for the Multi-Armed Contextual Bandit. And the idea here is that Thompson sampling, like what I described above, like what first was described in 1933, is great for certain ideal situations when you're like, okay, I have these machines and I have this class of probability distributions it should be, and you know all my ducks are in a row. But as you could tell how complex it was to just state the problem, in more complex situations, these equations become what, what are known as computationally intractable. That means that we can't find an exact answer. 
That means we need to improvise, maybe estimate it or, or simplify it somehow. And how exactly do they do this? Well, they take the probability distributions that are suggested by Thompson sampling, and then they approximate it with simpler distributions using a technique known as variational Bayes. So maybe we'll get into variational Bayes another time, but I think that the bottom line here is multi-arm bandits can be used in a lot of situations, and they model active learning or trying to choose situations, choose actions that maximize rewards over time while you kind of observe the reward that you get over time. So you're, it's called active learning because as the learner, you're actually choosing actions as you're, you're learning. It's not, you know, passive learning is something that we do more often, which is like supervised machine learning, which is just hey, I'm given the data set. I'm passive. I don't get to choose what's in the data set. It's already there. Uh, and oftentimes that, that's it as well. But multi-arm bandit is active. So it's interesting how uh, you have this research on multi-arm bandit from pre-computer age. Then it's used in the internet age in A-B testing uh, to try to automate exploration exploitation and how even today there is a lot of research going on in terms of how to solve it. Because even the way we think we know how to solve it, uh, which, is, uh, which is Thompson sampling, it's not a full solution because it's not, uh, it's, it's, it's not computationally possible in every situation. So that means there's a lot of, like, uh, there's a lot of uh, tricks and techniques that can be used to get closer to what Thompson sampling would give us. So all that is pretty good. I hope that, uh, I hope that makes sense. If you have a question about it, go on our locals, maximum.locals.com, or... Leave me an email at localmaxradio.com. Okay, I have a news update in terms of what else, the thing that we've been talking about all year, um, uh, computational, natural language processing, generated, generative language, and of course, OpenAI's chat GPT and what it is doing in the market for search. This article from the New York Times is from Kevin Roos, who, is who has tested a new version of... Microsoft Bing that he says uses ChatGPT. The title of the article is Bing. Yes, Bing just made search interesting again. Uh, Kevin claims that um, Bing is now good, actually, which is surprising because it hasn't been as good as Google in the past. It's kind of been playing number two uh, for many years. Microsoft recently re-upped their investment in OpenAI to the tunes of billions of dollars, like $10 billion, to use their language model technology into their search uh, product. Here's the key description from the article that I wanted to read for, for you. The new Bing, which is available only to a small group of testers uh, now and will become more widely available soon, looks like a hybrid of a standard search engine and a GPT-style chatbot. Type in, a, type in a prompt and say, write me a menu for a vegetarian dinner party. And the left side of your screen fills up with the standard ads and links to recipe websites. On the right side of your screen, Bing's AI engine starts typing out a response in full sentences, often annotated with links to the websites it's retrieving information from. To ask a follow-up question or make a more detailed request, for example, write a grocery list for that menu sorted by aisle with amounts needed to make enough food for eight people. You can open up a chat window and type it. For now, the new Bing only works on desktop computers using Edge, Microsoft web browser, but the company told me that it planned to expand to other browsers and devices eventually. I tested the new Bing for a few hours on Tuesday afternoon, and it's a marked improvement over Google. It's also an improvement over ChatGPT, 
which despite its many capabilities, was never designed to be used as a search engine. It doesn't cite its sources. It has trouble incorporating up-to-date information or events. So while ChatGPT can write a beautiful poem about baseball or draft a testy email to your landlord, it's less suited to telling you what happened in Ukraine last week or where to find a decent meal in Albuquerque. Uh, the article here, it, it calls out some perfections uh, that these, um, these chat models have, these large language models. It's kind of obvious one is the non-awareness in math. Like sometimes it gets math correctly, but sometimes it just does not understand math, which is kind of funny because it's all based on math. And sometimes it makes up some stuff wholesale, uh, just gives you fake news and makes it sound good. So all of those are issues that, that we have to work around. But Ruth says, when the new Bing works, it's not just a better search engine. It's an entirely new way of interacting with information on the internet and one whose full implications I'm still trying to wrap my head around. So obviously the rest of us can't use it. So we'll have to see, uh, we'll have to see uh, whether the hype is, uh, is warranted when the rest of us test it out. Okay, so what's going on up at Google? NPR says Google shares dropped, uh, the Google market cap, I guess, dropped $100 billion after its new AI chatbot makes a mistake. NPR writes, in a fateful ad that ran on Google's Twitter feed this week, the company described Bard as a launch pad for curiosity and search tool to help simplify complex topics and accompanying GIF prompts Bard with the question, what new discoveries from the James Webb Space Telescope can I tell my nine-year-old about? The chatbot responds with a few bullet points, including the claim that the telescope looks to the very, uh, took the very first pictures of exoplanets or planets outside the solar system. These discoveries can spark a child's imagination about the infinite wonders of the universe, Bard says. But the James Webb Telescope didn't discover exoplanets the European Southern Observatory's very large telescope took the first pictures of those special celestial bodies in 2004, a fact that NASA confirms. Social media users quickly pointed out that the company could have fact-checked the exoplanet claim by, well, Googling it. Okay, so this one episode, of course, doesn't discount Google's whole stack. And again, <laughs> like the article says, this is an issue that can happen, well, uh, well, it can happen by by fact check. It could be fixed by fact checking, but it can happen with any of these generative text uh, text systems. I don't believe for a second that ChatGPT, and even when it goes onto GPT four, even when when it even when you scale it up, even when Microsoft is using it, I don't think any of these text generative generative text system are immune from from this whole thing. I think the only thing is just is embarrassing for Google because they didn't. Uh, they didn't check the example that they were giving out. So again, with the article, ethicists warn the technology raises the risk of biased answers, increased plagiarism, and the spread of misinformation. Though they're often perceived as all-knowing machines, AI bots frequently state incorrect information as fact because they're designed to fill the gap. And I think a big question is going to be, well, how do we deal with that? I mean, the, the, the correct information problem goes beyond just AI. I mean, that's a, that's a problem that we're dealing with even in the even in the human internet. So we have to have, we still have to have good ways of, of dealing with that. Um, and it's probably gonna require us thinking about epistemology. And it's probably gonna require us thinking about, you know, what is a, uh, you know, uh, what are our filters for misinformation? And could those filters themselves be captured 
and be uh, vehicles for misinformation, as is often the case. So, all right, clearly Microsoft is winning the narrative war today, in, in, you know, over the last several months. Google is behind, not necessarily in the technology, but in the narrative war. Could this change? Absolutely. It's like politics. Sometimes one, one party's head, sometimes another party's head. I, I still think Google's less than stellar record on launching new products, going all the way back to episode 36, the Google graveyard, that can hurt them more than uh, what helps them is their years of research dominance and hiring the brightest, which would really be a shame. You know, you hire the best people, you have all this research, and then you stumble right at the end of the race because, uh, you, you know, you're your system for launching products is not that great. But still, this is brand new AI tech. The winner could go in any direction, including new entrants coming in that could challenge both Google and Microsoft, perhaps even OpenAI itself. Remember, Google started by partnering with then-dominant Yahoo, helped Yahoo a lot, but ultimately surpassed them, um, maybe ultimately killed them in the end because people were no even... There was the there were like the the late two thousands early twenty tens where Yahoo was clinging onto the fact that they had their home screen, you know where you could do a Yahoo search. But once it wasn't backed by Google search, and once the Google search screen was really what people wanted, you know there was no reason to use uh, Yahoo anymore. And so uh, so they died out. Maybe there's maybe there's more to the story with Yahoo. I don't know. Um, but that's uh, that's what's going on there. All right. So now that we've done our uh, we've we've gone through our, our 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 news update. Now it's time, of course, for the probability distribution of the week. And now, now the probability distribution of the week. You know, I probably shouldn't have said probability distribution of the week before I played the bumper music. I think you're supposed to be surprised by the bumper and be like, "Oh yeah, that's what this is." I don't know. Maybe uh, maybe my broadcast skills need a <laughs> need, need an update here. All right, the Dirichlet distribution. That's what we're talking about today. It's something I've thought about a lot, and we're going to talk about it more later because, uh, as as I as I'm going to mention, you know, there's a lot of things that you could build from the Dirichlet distribution uh, that are that's. Um, that, that that's that's really cool, really sophisticated. And of course, on the podcast here today, I'm not I'm I'm trying to get you interested about these ideas. I'm not trying to get you you know get you to know all the 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 nitty get into all the nitty gritty. But I will have links on the website localmaxradio.com/slash two sixty five to get into the nitty gritty if you want. Um, and the Dirichlet distribution, I want to do that today because it goes with the multi arm bandit pretty well. Uh, in the multi-arm bandit, you have many different actions to choose, but it's a it's a finite state, a finite space. So you have like k different actions to choose from. In Dirichlet distribution, we're also looking at categorical data or multinomial data with several options to choose from, and it also, and you also encounter that two-phase thinking, and I'll get to that in a little bit. So, um, in in episode two thirty-four, we covered the probability simplex, and uh, the probability simplex is is when you have okay, there are several different events, and you know I have a certain probability of each event, and those probabilities have to add to one because I know that exactly one of these things is going to be true. Um, and then in episode uh, six twenty six, we look at the beta distribution, and we said okay, there are two events, and there's some probability that event A is going to occur, and then one minus P, the opposite probability. Uh, that event B is going to occur, and we have some uncertainty as to what that probability is. 
And so we want to come up with some probability distribution over that uncertainty. A beta distribution uh, does that. So now the, the Dirichlet distribution is the, the, um, the multi-dimensional generalization of the beta distribution. It's a distribution that is over the probability simplex. We have a bunch of numbers that add to one. I don't know what those numbers are. I want to express uncertainty as to what those numbers are, but I have some information about them. That's when I can use a Dirichlet distribution. So imagine that you have like some weighted dice, weighted die, where each side has a different weight. If you were uncertain as to how that die were weighted, uh, you can express that uncertainty as a Dirichlet distribution. Very, uh, uh, very useful. And so this is where we get into the, that kind of two-phase thinking, right? There's that, there's that bottom phase where like, hey, I know, how a, I know how the dice works. I know how the die works. I just, when I roll it, I don't know what it's going to come up as. And then there's the, the higher level, the Dirichlet distribution, where it's like, yeah, I, I actually don't know how the die, die works. I have some ideas. And so that uncertainty is expressed in the Dirichlet distribution. So... Now you're talking about a k-sided die. You have k categories. The Dirichlet actually has k parameters, but unlike the categorical distribution, they no longer have to add up to one. So yes, you can take each, each of the k parameters kind of corresponds to a different side of the die, but um, they don't have to add up to one. You can normalize them to add up to one. Uh, in other words, divide by the sum, and that is actually the mean location of the Dirichlet distribution. That's like kind of where you think the 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 where, where how you think the the die is weighted uh, on average. Uh, if you kind of like you know normalize those those k numbers, but it kind of matters if those numbers are very high or if those numbers are very low. Like if you add them up, do they get go to a hundred or do they go to like z close to zero or are they or are they close to one? Um, so if the values are very high, then the probability is centered on the mean. Uh, and then if the values are very low, there's a high amount of variance until the probability starts to accumulate in the corners of the distribution. So what, what does that really mean practically? In other words, it means that if you have a Dirichlet distribution with a high weight, it means we're pretty certain, uh, the, about the weight of the die. So for example, let's say we think that the die is fair. Okay. So... Um, that means that maybe every parameter of the Dirichlet distribution for every side is the same. They're all equal because it's fair. They're the same, but they're all really high. Like maybe they're all 100, maybe they're all 1,000, maybe they're all a million. So um, maybe we think they're close to fair, but, uh, but, it, but th that means that, um, uh, that, means that the, the die is going to be very close to fair. We're pretty sure it's close to fair. It might be a little bit off fair. It might be one side might be a few points higher than another, you know, so we're still uncertain, but we're expressing a high degree of uncertainty. Low weight, and you could do that, doesn't have to be with a fair die. It could be like, you know, okay, we're, we're pretty certain that the one is twice as likely to come up as the six on this die. Um, and maybe it's not twice as likely, maybe it's 2.1 times as likely, maybe it's 1.9 times as likely, but we're pretty sure that it's around there. So we, so that you'll also get a Dirichlet distribution with a very high weight. Now, what happens if it's a low weight? Like a low weight could mean, let's say in the fair case, let's say they're all like 0.01. That means it's a trick die, in which case one side always comes up, but we're very uncertain over which side that is. So... Uh, notice that in both cases of, let's say you have a fair die uh, with a very high uh, a weight for the Dirichlet distribution, or you have 
a, a die that's trick and one side always comes up and you have a very low weight of the distribution, but you have no idea which side it is. In both cases, a single roll, we have, we have total uncertainty over that single roll. We're still like, you know, equally uncertain as to which, uh, which number it's going to come up as. But it's different kind of uncertainty. In, in one case, it's the uncertainty is because we know the die is fair, um, but, you know, that fairness gives us a, a, a rightful uncertainty over what's going to happen. On the other side, we know that the die is unfair, but we don't know how it's unfair. So we still have the same uncertainty over what, what comes up. And so that's, that's sort of, um, that, that goes hand in hand for the, that, that kind of two, two ways of thinking. And that's why, you know, unlike in the categorical distribution, these numbers don't add up to one that gives you like an extra degree of freedom. It's that sort of um, mixture, it, it, that term, corresponds to that extra layer of uncertainty that we're taking into account here. So as you can imagine, you can use the Dirichlet uh, distribution uh, to build many things, just like you can the normal distribution. Uh, the Dirichlet multinomial is my favorite, and we'll have to follow up on that another time. I have a paper called Fast Maximum Likelihood Estimation of Dirichlet Multinomial, which I wrote in 2014. Honestly, I think it's almost time for an update on that because I've learned so much in the last 10 years. Um, but uh, hopefully we'll, we'll get into that soon. And um, yeah, maybe I'll, maybe I'll post some papers on that. Maybe I'll post that paper here on the local maximum. All right, next week, we're going to speak to author Joel Gruse about the latest technology in natural language processing. So this is like getting into the weeds of how this works and not just the tech news on Google and Microsoft and OpenAI, which is, you know, what we've been doing, but, you know, some of the more, some of the more like nitty gritty, I'll make you smarter. It'll make us all smarter in terms of how the process of natural language processing is like, what, you know, how does this technology work? So if you really want to understand that, you're not going to want to miss this. And then later down the road, we're going to have Aubrey Clayton on, another author, and he is going to talk about uh, Bayesian inference and its important to human its importance to humanity. Uh, a lot of interesting, uh, a lot of interesting kind of uh, feedback from last week's episode with Adam Kavakovich. I know a lot of you <laughs> messaged me saying, oh, "I don't," you know, a lot of my audience has has very different views, and that's uh, that's great. That's great. I love it. So uh, so so tell me what you think about all of these things, and um, yeah. Once again, I'm going to pitch locals, maximum.locals.com. Use the promo code WINTER23 or just email us at localmaxradio.com. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. To support the Local Maximum, sign up for exclusive content and our online community at maximum.locals.com. The Local Maximum is available wherever podcasts are found. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe on your podcast app. Also, check out the website with show notes and additional materials at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. Have a great week. Feel the power. 